Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There's high drama at the Colorado legislature today. At issue is the so-called Red Flag Warning Bill, which would allow judges to order people to surrender their guns when they present a risk to themselves or others. It's sponsored by Democratic State Representative Alec Garnett of Denver. And in a move that's put him in some political trouble, Republican State Representative Cole Wist. Here's Wist on the House floor Wednesday night. Now, members, I have cast in my three sessions numerous votes in support of citizens' constitutional rights. And I'll continue to to, uh, support the Second Amendment. I don't believe that this bill is a gun confiscation bill. I don't believe that this bill is a gun control bill. I believe that this bill is a public safety bill. And I believe that this bill has the potential to save lives. The House, which is controlled by Democrats, gave preliminary approval to the bill that night. A final vote is expected there today. Then it heads to the Senate, where Republicans have the majority. I'm joined by Representative Wist. He's from Centennial in Denver's southern suburbs. Welcome to the program. It is a pleasure to be with you. In arguing for this bill, you've pointed to an incident last New Year's Eve in suburban Denver. A Douglas County Sheriff's deputy named Zachary Parrish and several other officers responded to a disturbance call. The suspect barricaded himself inside, and when officers entered, they were ambushed. Parrish died. Several others were wounded. You believe this law would have prevented that. How? Well, first of all, this incident happened just a couple of miles from my house. And I can tell you that that resonated with the citizens of my district. Um, And it resonated with me as a father and as a member of this community. What it suggested to me is that we put law enforcement in a very difficult spot. We expect these folks to fill a lot of roles. They are marriage counselors, they are law enforcement officers, they are psychologists. Unless we give them the tools that they need, the horrific risk that they face is sometimes deadly. We had a number of red flags that indicated that this person was a threat to himself and to the community. He had made specific threats to his former law school, the University of Wyoming, to the Lone Tree Police Department, and to the Douglas County Sheriff's Department. Even in light of all of those threats, it didn't, in the the opinion of law enforcement uh, and the district attorney, meet the standard for an M1 72-hour hold. And this prompted this bill that we're talking about today. You mentioned that that 72-hour hold uh, for a mental crisis. That's already Colorado law. What would this bill do differently? Because opponents say that that 72-hour hold, that's already law. That should be enough. Well, the standard is imminent threat or imminent danger. I don't think we have given the amount of clarification to law enforcement. And perhaps the one of the results of this conversation is that we are going to have a discussion about what that means. Also, my frustration with the 72-hour hold is it's somewhat of a misnomer. 72 hours is not 72 hours most of the time. They take them in on a hold. They may be in the hospital for two or three hours, and then they're released. These folks have no continuity of care once they get out. We don't have the resources for them. Let's focus on policy so that these individuals can be successful, they can return to their normal lives, they can return to our communities, and we can restore safety. We heard you say in that tape a minute ago that this is not a gun control bill or a gun confiscation bill. 
But in fact, those are the very words your opponents are, are using. They argue that people's guns would indeed be confiscated and that this is a really slippery slope because somebody's girlfriend or boyfriend may make up a story or a cop gets angry and claims the person has mental problems. What are the protections here? First of all, I'm an attorney and a due process is very, very important to me, particularly where you're talking about fundamental liberties. We're requiring a very high standard, a very high burden of proof on someone to come in and get one of these orders. We're keeping the burden on the petitioner throughout that process. If a person misuses this process, provides false statements to a court, misleads the court, there are going to be uh, potential criminal penalties for that. They're signing these statements under penalty of perjury. But this is still confiscation, correct? It's removal of a weapon based upon the, the, the meeting of a legal standard. Now, we already have civil protection orders in domestic violence cases. This is already on the books. But uh, I can certainly say that the objective is not the removal of the firearm. The objective is to reduce the risk that the person in crisis could present a hazard to himself or others. But one of the major issues here is suicide. And we have talked for several years in this state about our unusually high suicide rate. I, I believe that this bill also addresses that risk. You have an A rating from the National Rifle Association, and you've said you're a supporter of the Second Amendment. Others have argued that this is in direct violation of that amendment. This bill is not about making guns illegal. This bill is not about uh, taking any guns off the market. This bill is not about, you know, prohibiting somebody, someone from possessing a gun. Um, and I think it's good public policy. I think it's consistent with the Second Amendment. Uh, there are two court cases where the constitutionality of similar laws have been considered. Uh, and each of those instances, these types of laws were upheld. I will point out that uh, a law like this has been on the books in deep red Indiana for 12 years, for 12 years. And in that time... This law, or the law in Indiana, has only been used uh, a little over 40 times. It doesn't sound to me like uh, this is a threat to the First, Second, or Fourth Amendments. Uh, and it also doesn't sound to me like this process is being abused there. And I have confidence that it would be uh, uh, utilized correctly here. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Republican State Representative Cole Wist. He's co-sponsoring a bill which would allow judges to order people to surrender their guns when they present a risk to themselves or others. I want to go behind the scenes here. The bill was just introduced last Monday. The legislative session ends next Wednesday. This is a big bill, 30 pages, I, I think. And it's on a topic that divides Americans very bitterly. Why introduce it so late? when it could perhaps have had more thoughtful debate if uh, introduced earlier? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And I, as I said on the, the floor of the House the other night, I own that. Um, we tried to get the bill uh, as perfect as we could get it. Um, we spent a lot of time with law enforcement talking about uh, this bill. And it has the support of, of my district attorney, George Brockler, uh, my sheriff, Dave Walcher, Congressman Mike Kaufman, uh, uh Sheriff Tony Spurlock in Douglas County. So we've reached out to a lot of influential folks. They strongly support the bill. Would I like to have two more weeks? Absolutely. You mentioned many uh, prominent Republicans who have supported this idea of a red flag warning. Uh, but, but why has it provoked such anger among your colleagues in the state legislature? 
uh, you know, I, Republicans don't always do collectivism well. And I, it's one of the things I love about being a Republican is we truly believe in individual liberty and freedom. We have our uh, strong ideas about government and the proper role of government and the role that the Constitution plays. I'm proud of that. You know, if we are going to be successful as a party, we have to uh, broaden the tent and we have to expand the conversation and welcome all voices. And, and uh, I hope we can do that as a party in a respectful uh, manner. You're the number two Republican in the House. The bill was introduced Monday morning. Late that night, there was a move to remove you from leadership. Nothing actually came of that. But did that take you by surprise? You know, we're we're a family. Uh, we, we have strongly held views about things. We have spirited discussions. I uh, appreciate the the opportunity, and I uh, am honored to serve our caucus in leadership. Uh, and I can just tell you that I, I told my caucus that evening uh, that I heard their concerns. I told them that I wanted to continue to serve, and I'm, I'm still serving as the assistant minority leader. Well, Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, a local pro-gun group, put a post out on Facebook after the introduction of the bill. It refers to you as, quote, a mole and urges its hundreds of thousands of followers to call you to, quote, knock it off. Did you expect that kind of response? I expect every day as a legislator to get criticism. Personal attacks uh, don't get me down. I'm going to continue to see this through, um, and uh, I'm, I'm doing just fine. But this week must have felt intense to you. It was very intense, very intense. Do you still feel at home in the Republican Party? I do. The bill was originally scheduled for a final vote in the House Thursday that was delayed. Does that mean there are negotiations going on right now to perhaps make it more palatable to your fellow Republicans in the legislature? We are open to hearing ideas. Uh, we certainly are at the tail end of the session. But if there are ways that we can improve the bill, make it better, um, we're open to that conversation. Now, I, I'm a realist. I, I, I believe that the chances are not particularly good that this bill makes it through the Senate next week, which is Republican controlled. Right. But, uh, you know, what I'm what I'm going to share uh, today uh, with with my colleagues is that I hope that this is the beginning of the conversation and that we will uh, continue to talk about ways to fix our broken mental health system in this state, because I truly believe in my core that it's broken and that we have citizens in crisis every day and they need our help, and that we're putting law enforcement on the front line uh, in that fight and in that battle. And if we're going to do that to law enforcement, uh, I sure hope we give them tools so that they can be successful and go home to their families at night. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Republican State Representative Cole Wist of Centennial. He's co-sponsoring a bill which would allow judges to order people to surrender their guns when they present a risk to themselves or others. Colorado has been ground zero for marijuana legalization, but now that other states are looking to expand their medical marijuana marketplaces or to outright legalize recreational weed, many of the nation's policymakers are getting key facts wrong about Colorado's pot market. Joining us from Washington, D.C. to explain these misperceptions is congressional reporter Matt Laszlo. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So what are policymakers saying about Colorado's pot marketplaces? Well, it's funny. Like everything in this hyperpartisan Washington, it 
really depends on who you ask. So you have pro-pot lawmakers who say Colorado's, you know, the gold or even the green standard when it comes to marijuana legalization. And then you have opponents decrying it and, you know, talking about a lot of myths. Uh, here's what uh, Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King told us. I think it's terrible. And I think it proliferates marijuana all over the Midwest. And it's causing all kinds of social problems in Colorado. And wherever it's proliferated, it's causing social problems. And it's part of the defiance of federal law. And now Congressman King is correct. Police have busted up rings of, um, you know, basically cartel activity, one might say, of people trying to ship Colorado weed to other states. And, you know, that I think they busted it, um, trying to go to like some 30 states. So not just the Midwest, you know. But when he talks about social problems, you know, that's really a stretch. You know, some crime has ticked up in the state um, since legalization, like auto thefts and even the murder rate. Um, But other crimes are down, like property crimes. Um, And the backdrop of all of this is the opioid crisis. So police and law enforcement officials really don't know whether this is because of the opioid um, crisis that's raging and that actually makes people go out and steal uh, to feed their needs and to get money uh, or to feed their addiction. But then, um, yeah, you can't really tie it to marijuana. I see. So it could be the opioid crisis. It could be marijuana. It, it's kind of like the jury is out. Is that what you're, you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. So, so what are other lawmakers saying about Colorado and our marijuana industry? Well, one of the biggest things you heard repeatedly uh, just polling lawmakers about this uh, is driving accidents. And um, I think the experience in Colorado indicates that there may have been an increase in um, auto accidents, for example. All I know is they got a whole lot more uh, instances of drug driving, uh, and that's a danger. And that's Republican Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland, who opposes all marijuana. He's a doctor, and he's uh, renowned for hating all weed. Uh, And then the other one was Leonard Lance of New Jersey, who actually supports medicinal marijuana. And... What this shows us is that lawmakers are really just kind of cherry-picking headlines um, because the jury's still out on this. So last year, we had the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety release a study showing that accidents related to marijuana uh, increased by 3%. But then you had another study come out by the American Journal of Public Health that showed there was no increase in auto accidents uh, since marijuana Uh, was legalized in the state. And and critics say the tests on these are really flawed because you can't test how much THC is in someone's system, um, you know, during the accident, like you can with alcohol. Because if you smoke weed, say, a month ago, it's still going to show up in your um, bloodstream and stuff. So, again, the jury's out, but lawmakers across the nation hear one headline that agrees with uh, their ideology, and then they go with that. What else are you hearing? Well, some lawmakers are talking about edibles. Here's Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, a moderate's moderate. I will say that I think Colorado made a lot of mistakes, such as allowing marijuana to be in edibles. And, you know, this is funny. There, early on, there were reports of, uh, you know, young people overdosing from marijuana. Not the case. Even the DEA says that's not the case. Um, and one doctor in Colorado claims that an 11-month year old uh, kid uh, found his parents edibles, ate them, and then died of it. Other doctors strongly disagree with that. Um, And actually, public health officials say ingesting edibles is actually better because you're not smoking marijuana, which, you know, smoking anything is bad for your lungs and could lead to cancer. So actually, people say the edible industry is better for public health. So what about Colorado lawmakers? Are there any takeaways uh, there? 
Well, Colorado Democrat uh, Jared Polis offers this. I think it falls along the lines of wherever they stand on the issue uh, for those who support uh, uh, decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana. Uh, they look at Colorado's success story uh, for those who, um, who continue to oppose it despite the overwhelming popular support for marijuana legalization. They resort to fake news stories uh, that are incorrect about the Colorado experience. So Polis and others would agree that there's two main takeaways. For one, don't leave your weed out. <laughs> you know, just like you don't leave uh, prescriptions out. If you have kids, lock it in your cabinet. Lock it in a safe if you have kids. Uh, the other takeaway is we need more studies on marijuana. Right now, um, federal policy, because of the federal prohibition on weed, um, researchers, federally funded research institutes are really prohibited in how much studying they can do on uh, marijuana. So we really need more studies. And, you know, Colorado is seen as this great experiment when it comes to weed. So it might take a decade or even longer for us to get good concrete data to know uh, what exactly are the benefits or um, the potential harms with marijuana. Now, what about the president assuring Colorado Republican Senator Cory Gardner that he supports states' rights to legalize weed? Well, this is one of those interesting things. Um, Gardner says that in a private conversation, the president has given him assurances that he supports the state's rights to choose on this. Well, that's at odds with uh, his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who's actually asked Congress to be able to go in and use federal resources to go after um, either medicinal marijuana shops or recreational um, uh, shops or grow rooms. Um, and so the president telling him this in private it leaves a lot of lawmakers dubious. Even his fellow Republican congressman, um, Mike Kaufman, told me that he's really dubious of the president. We've seen no legislation sent to the Capitol. We've um, not seen Attorney General Jeff Sessions change his stance. And the president, he changed his stance on DACA. He changed his stance on gun control. And even this week, we saw him change his stance on whether he paid money to this porn star, Stormy Daniels. So people are pretty dubious of um the private assurances that the president gave uh, Senator Gardner. So it's definitely a wait-and-see atmosphere, it seems. Matt, thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Reporter Matt Laszlo talking with us about how Colorado's cannabis industry is viewed, sometimes incorrectly, on Capitol Hill. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hundreds of glass jars are on display at a new memorial in Alabama. They're filled with dirt collected from sites of documented lynchings of African-Americans. Above hang steel markers with the names of victims. Here's a clip from a tour with the project leader and Oprah Winfrey on 60 Minutes. We wanted people to have a sense of just the scale of what this violence, what this terrorism was. So this is over 4,000 yeah. that have been documented, but of course there are more. Thousands more. And will we ever even know how many? We will never know. Creators of the memorial say its purpose is to end the silence around African-American lynchings in the U.S. Among the remembered victims are three murdered in Colorado. Stephen Leonard is a professor from Metro State University. He wrote a book about the history of lynchings here in the state. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. The three are from Pueblo, Otero, and Lincoln counties. Can you tell us the story of what happened in Lincoln at a place just outside of Lyman? Yeah, just outside of Lyman in 1900, November of 1900, uh, Preston Porter Jr., a, a 16-year-old, was lynched 
um, burned at the stake. Most people think a lynching is hanging, but burning at the stake is, was also done particularly in the South. Uh, I believe he was the only uh, person burned at the stake in Colorado, though. Um, he was accused of uh, raping and killing a, uh, a young girl in uh, Lyman or near Lyman. Uh, whether he did it or not, we'll never know because uh, we never had a trial and the evidence was fairly circumstantial. Um, he was uh, captured in Denver and then put on a train sent back to Lyman after four days of uh, mistreatment in Denver, being put in a sweat box and uh, dehydrated and having his uh, brother and his father threatened with uh, being charged in the case too. Uh, as I probably said, he was 16 years old, taken back to Lyman and uh, uh, taken off the train, taken to Lake Station. Probably the train actually stopped in Lake Station. It was a small siding about two miles uh, southeast of Lyman. And uh, there he was tied to an iron rail and uh, burned at the stake. Uh, they said they could hear his uh, uh, cries a mile away. The torture was so great. And... Uh, it's one of the great, horrible marks in Colorado history. Uh, got national attention. Even Mark Twain, who was at that time thinking about writing a book about lynching, uh, uh, talked about this this case. It was one of the more horrendous uh, lynchings outside of the South uh, in that period. And, and you mentioned earlier about the, the, the history of lynchings and the fact that many people think they're simply hangings. But it's really the fact that there is a mob of people taking the law into their own hands. In, in that that's, that's right. Uh, 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 lynching is the illegal taking of a life uh, by a group. It might be a mob. It might be vigilantes uh, who are doing it under the pretext of uh, enforcing justice or enforcing a racial tradition uh, of some sort. And so you need more than just a simple murder. It's not a one-on-one -on -one murder, but it's a group of people doing it. So that, that lynching of that man outside Lyman garnered national attention. Was it shocking at the time? It was shocking in the north. Uh, the, the south had many uh, really horrendous lynchings uh, and include Texas in the south. Uh, uh, Texas had a horrible lynching record. Uh, but in the North, uh, especially uh, uh, by 1900, uh, lynchings of that brutality were, n were certainly not common. Uh, I'm not saying that they didn't happen, but they were not common in, in, in the northern states. Um, the uh, lynching memorial, by the way, I think has undercounted the number of uh, people lynched in, in Colorado – Probably because of the dates that they have. They, they want to go from 1877 to the 1950s. But there were also lynchings in uh, Uray County and San Juan County of uh, blacks and uh, also in Georgetown. All of that's before the dates that the memorial uh, encompasses. There are three lynchings uh, that took place in Colorado that are documented at the memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, you say there were likely six African-Americans lynched here. Uh, but, of course, you've discovered many more lynchings of not just African-Americans, but of Latinos and other minorities, as well as uh, whites who were lynched, uh, which reminds me of past interviews I've done with Wild West authors who talk about the lynching of bandits and bank robbers and things like that. But this of course, seems very different. Early on in Colorado history, there were those kinds of lynchings, and even those were unjustified, most of them. 
because after 1861, we organized courts and it was perfectly possible to give people fair trials or at least reasonably fair trials. Uh, from 1861 on, uh, we had a number of lynchings of uh, oh, uh, accused murderers, cattle thieves, uh, people at various accusations of crimes. Gradually, it was only the more uh, serious and heinous uh, charges that uh, would lead to a, a lynching. So there were more than just minorities that were being lynched in Colorado. Probably more than 100 were uh, lynchings of whites by other whites. Uh, uh, there were a number of Hispanic lynchings. There were probably at least 20 uh, Hispanic lynchings. Uh, there were some Italians. There were a few Chinese uh, but uh, in many cases, it was uh, simply whites lynching whites. You've also said that uh, lynchings have become somewhat romanticized. Can, can you can you talk about why you say that? Well, I think it's a way of uh, coping with a very uh, inconvenient reality, and that is uh, when you don't want to admit that uh, your ancestors did wrong, uh, you find some way to sugarcoat it and. Uh, you say it was a necessary response to uh, their conditions. Well, rarely was it that. It was very often just a uh, a terrible thing that happened in a community because people thought that they knew who committed a crime, or in some cases maybe just didn't didn't like the people. Uh, one of the uh, uh, lynchings uh, was the beating to death of a Chinese man here in Denver in uh, 1880. He'd done nothing. Uh, a mob just formed. They were angry at the Chinese because of economic competition and they beat the man to death. And, and, and so there were a variety of reasons, uh, but uh, you know, we don't want to look back and say, well, we were wrong. So we say we were just uh, good old Westerners uh, uh, keeping the peace. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're speaking with Stephen Leonard. He's a professor at Metro State University and has written a book about the history of lynchings in Colorado. We're speaking about the new memorial to African-American lynching victims in Montgomery, Alabama, and the three lynchings that took place in Colorado that are documented there. You've said that the uh, memorial in Montgomery, Alabama covers from 1877 to, to 1950. That's what I've read, yes. Um, it, it must be really difficult to pinpoint the the exact year that lynching began in the U.S., right? It is, uh, and especially when you get back into the 1820s and 1830s. But there were lynchings uh, bef before the Civil War and um, – uh, Many times lynchings weren't reported. Uh, that's why I, I can say that Colorado had at least 175, but there may be more. And uh, in fact, uh, every year the, there are numbers added to to the numbers that uh, have been known before. Equal Justice Initiative is behind the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. And they've also created monuments for each community with a documented lynching and would like them to display that in their communities. You think that could be a problem. Uh, why? Well, I think most communities don't want to deal with it even now. In some cases, they probably have people who are living in the communities who are the great-grandchildren, maybe even the grandchildren of some of the people who, who are involved. I think they'd be a lot better just simply to face it and um, uh, to deal with it um, because it's something that won't go away. It's, uh, it's, it's been done 
I remember in the Lyman case, uh, uh, they said that they would keep the steel rail there or the rail that they uh, burned uh, Preston Porter at uh, forever uh, as a memorial to to evidently what uh, they thought Preston Porter was. But um, they took it down within, I think, a month or a month and a half because uh, the family didn't want to be reminded of um, uh, of the death of their daughter. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think everybody would be better to face the past. Uh, the, the, the past is just like the present, a, a, a mixture of good and bad, and, and I don't think we do ourselves any good by denying it. Is there also a concern that, that maybe the memorial uh, that would be coming to, to towns in Colorado don't uh, talk about the Hispanic uh, population that maybe was lynched or, or the other uh, minorities who were lynched? Well, I think it would be good to have inclusion just so that uh, the whole story is known. Uh, that doesn't mean that you couldn't have uh, you know separate plaques or whatever uh, the powers that be thought was a reasonable thing to do. Uh, but I, I think it would uh, – you know, Italians, for example, were very badly treated and again, it was economic competition. Uh, certainly, uh, everyone should be included. The people behind the memorial say the country has been silent about lynchings and, and it sounds like you agree on that. Well, I think at times scholar, – there's considerable scholarship on lynchings, uh, especially since the 1990s. And at times, the country gets a, a little bit willing to recognize its lynching past. Then it forgets and then it remembers again. But but this memorial seems to, to... – Oh, this this memorial will certainly draw national attention to it. I, I don't think we'd be talking here today if it weren't for the memorial. So you feel it's a good thing, the memorial? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I, I, I think – we have to protect the notion of due process of law in this country and that's constantly under assault. Uh, and lynching was one of the worst examples of the denial of due process of law and and it's certainly happening today. Uh, people are you know get upset with the courts for taking time and um, being very careful about evidence. but frankly, that protects us all and if we don't keep that in mind, uh, we'll lose that. Uh, that's that's something that you must preserve. Do you still find people who, when they're told that Colorado was a place where lynchings occurred, that, that they're surprised? I think to some degree they are, especially if they haven't studied any Colorado history. Yeah, they, they just haven't, uh, haven't heard of it. We had a tremendous, huge lynching in Denver in terms of the crowd, something like 50,000 people in uh, in 1894, uh, at least that's the upper end of the estimate, were at least witnesses to that lynching. So, you know, it's 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 around us. Will you continue to, to possibly find other locations where lynching? Oh, yes. Yes. I, I, I think uh, recently, in the last 10 years or more, there's been a lot of digitization of newspapers, which makes the research a lot easier. And uh, I, I have no doubt that some more will be found. I, I doubt if it will be large numbers, but, you know, there are probably 10 or more out there, maybe 20, who knows. That you still haven't discovered? That Yeah, that somebody will discover, you know. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Stephen Leonard is a professor at Metro State University. He wrote a book about the history of lynchings in Colorado and spoke about the new memorial to African-American lynching victims in Montgomery, Alabama. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Negotiations around the North American Free Trade Agreement continue, with President Trump saying a new deal is likely in the next few weeks. But it's not clear what the changes might be, which has some Colorado businesses worried. Others say the 24-year-old agreement needs an update. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. Before NAFTA, goods traded between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. were taxed. The idea behind the agreement was removing tariffs would increase trade, and things would become cheaper to make and buy. Since the agreement, U.S. trade with the two countries has more than tripled. According to the World Trade Center, in 2017, Colorado exported $2.7 billion worth of goods through NAFTA. Meat products were at the top of the list. It'll hurt. That's Rock Rutledge. He's a farmer and rancher in Yuma County. He raises cattle and around 30,000 pigs a year, but says corn and wheat are his biggest source of income. Right now, the prices on corn are low. Rutledge thinks it's because the U.S. has too much of it, and the best way to increase the value of corn and other ag products, he says, is to export goods to those who need them. He's afraid Mexico and Canada will start to trade more with other countries, and that could hurt his business. Last year, I just built a new house and had a set of twins, and this is the wrong year to do it. (laughs) Rutledge is already tightening his budget and says lots of people in this farming community are worried about changes to NAFTA, especially if Trump pulls out of the agreement entirely, something the president has threatened to do. Trump argues the U.S. loses with NAFTA because of trade deficits, where the U.S. buys and imports more than it sells and exports. Colorado is no exception. The state imported nearly $2.5 billion more than it exported in 2017. But others say that's a good thing. It means the U.S. has money to spend. Rutledge voted for Trump, but says he isn't happy with how the president is handling the situation. I think he flies too much off his shirt cuff and doesn't talk to anybody to figure out the best strategy and just on a lot of his policies, one day he'll say one thing and the next day he'll totally turn around and do something different. And uncertainty makes it hard to plan. Kevin Selvin knows that firsthand. He's the founder and CEO of Crazy Mountain Brewery. He says it took years for his company to set up a deal with an importer in Mexico. He finally did it right before the 2016 presidential election. Within days of the election, we got a call from our importer letting us know that with the uncertainty of NAFTA and the looming potential of it going away or changing drastically, they just couldn't move forward. The trade relationship with Canada is also a concern for Selvi. They're the largest consumer of American craft beer outside of the U.S. Colorado exported nearly $20 million worth of beer to Canada in 2017. And the barley to make Selvi's beer is imported from there. You know, nobody really understands what it would look like if NAFTA did go away. But like Trump, some believe NAFTA isn't a fair deal. Josh Downey is the president of the Denver Area Labor Federation, AFL-CIO. He says the trade agreement has failed working families with lost jobs and low wages. We feel like that's because CEOs and large corporations basically wrote this trade deal, and it's designed for global corporations and CEOs um, to, to benefit them. The state says it doesn't have numbers going back to 1994 when NAFTA started. But since 2003, more than 19,000 people in Colorado have been told they might be eligible for trade adjustment assistance. That's for workers who have lost jobs at companies found to have been impacted due to trade deals. The state has spent more than $17.5 million on the program in the last five years, on job retraining and wage subsidy. But the number isn't tied to NAFTA alone. Trade with China and the rest of the world has also grown. 
Downey says it's not just U.S. workers who are hurting. He says labor in Mexico is especially underpaid, which drives down wages across North America to compete. Downey wants NAFTA negotiations to raise standards for all workers and says he's cautiously optimistic. President Trump is a businessman, uh, so there is concern about a corporate-driven economic policy that we renegotiate NAFTA and instead of helping American workers, it is um, just amplifying the corporate greed. The union won't go as far to say that the U.S. should withdraw from NAFTA. A report from the Congressional Research Service says that could cause job losses in all three countries. But the report also says negotiations could be an opportunity to see how NAFTA hasn't met expectations, depending on how Congress and the president moves forward. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. A 2015 video of ISIS destroying artifacts in Iraq horrified Morishin Alayari. The artist and activist who graduated from DU has spent about a year researching what those artifacts looked like since there weren't many images of them. She reconstructed the pieces using 3D printing, and you can see some of her recreations in Colorado this week as part of the Lafayette Electronic Arts Festival. Morrison, welcome to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. I want to go back to 2015 when you first saw that video online of ISIS members destroying artifacts housed at the Mosul Museum in Iraq. What went through your mind? Um, You know, as an artist, I have been working a lot on different ideas and concepts in relationship to political issues, um, but also thinking about how technology can become um, a tool or a medium to archive and document different aspects of our lives. So archiving and saving memory has been, um, in many ways, part of my practice. And uh, I remember when the video of uh, the destruction of the artifacts came out, um, it sort of went viral. So a lot of people were sharing it. And it was a big shock for a lot of scholars and historians, um, especially those who work on the Middle East or are from the Middle East, because the way it was documented. Um, And... Yeah, so as an artist and activist, I really wanted to do something um, to respond to it and to use technology like 3D printing, which was, again, part of my work and practice uh, to reconstruct the artifacts that were destroyed. Your collection called Material Speculation ISIS includes more than a dozen reproduced artifacts, and three of those are on display in Colorado right now. The Mosul Museum was left in rubble. So how did you begin to research what these objects look like? Um, Yeah, so that was a very complicated part of this project. The research um, was, you know, uh, around like seven, eight months of of, uh, sort of trying to bring all this stuff together. Hmm. Um, I started to approach a lot of historians, scholars, um, a lot of uh, friends or people I knew um, in Iran who are archaeologists or historians. They helped me a lot with gathering material. And I was doing my research in Arabic and Farsi and English, I had access to a lot of different resources. And when I started to do this research, I actually um, realized that there was so little information available about some of these artifacts. Um, for example, I would look up the name of something uh, in, in English, and then I would like look at some older material in Arabic, and I would see that the name wouldn't match or some information wouldn't match. So, yeah, the research became a very important part of it um, and uh that that was one reason that, you know, the project took um, a long time to come together. And you also talked to some of the former staff of the museum, is that correct? 
Yes, yes. Somewhere in the middle of my research, after like five, six months, I finally got to, um, you know, be able to uh, find and get in touch with some of the former staff. And they provided a list um, that was super helpful. You know, that was probably the most accurate thing that I could have access to. What's an example of, of a breakthrough you had during this research process? Do you mean in terms of like working about on the artifacts or like their histories? Yeah, the, the research into this, where you're like, wow, this is something I didn't know or, or that surprised you as you were working through this. I mean, I think that that list, like bring, seeing that list was like a huge relief. And yeah. like I would I would call that a breakthrough because before that, I just had to rely on a lot of unknown information. And also another problem with this whole project was that no one had access to Mosul, right? ISIS left Mosul last summer. So until then, no one could go in and accurately see what was happening. So we just had to rely on videos and the knowledge that people could gather based on what, what they knew. And I think just being able to talk to the former staff of the museum um, just made such a huge difference. Why use 3D printing to recreate these artifacts? Well, I... I have thought about uh, 3D printing, um, you know, for the last five, six years, not just as a technology, but also as a metaphor, as a point of departure. I'm just interested in technology in general, not uh, for technology for technology's sake, but rather like how you can think about technology in a metaphoric, conceptual way. And I really enjoy poetics of technology. And I think 3D printing has that potential as, as this new new technology that we have access to. Um, I'm going to mention that it, as a technology, it's been around for more than 30 years, but only recently it's, it's become accessible and inexpensive in a way that we can use it. Um, but I was, you know, like, let's say like the, this idea of um, this layer by layer of an object being built, which is what... Um, what's called an additive process in 3D printing, right? I really love that concept as a way that it would uh, come as opposed to destruction, this idea of destruction and um, sort of like how they would connect to each other. You did all of this research and you uploaded all of it onto flash drives and then you embedded them in each reconstructed artifact. And since the recreations are clear, that flash drive is visible in the artifact. Why did you want to add that element to the art? Um, yeah, so the research, uh, again, was very important and sort of like wanted to make sure that that becomes part of um, the project. You know, I was not approaching this project as uh, an archaeologist or just as a historian. I, I wanted these layers, these poetics of, to, to become part of it. And um, embedding the memory card and flash drive and then uh, putting all the information I've gathered, PDF files, images, my e email correspondent with historians and scholars, um, like all that was, was very important. And I think at that point, I was thinking about the sculptures as time capsules yeah. and um, sort of like this idea of keeping this memory, keeping this knowledge, keeping this information inside the sculptures for the future civilizations. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News, and I'm speaking with artist and activist Morishan Alayari. She grew up in Iran and attended DU for her master's in digital media studies. Selections from her project Material Speculation ISIS are on display in Lafayette through Saturday using 3D printing. Alayari reconstructed historical artifacts that have been destroyed by ISIS. So do these flash drives uh, contain files you, you, you use to produce the 3D reproductions? I mean, I mean, in other words, can people take those out and reproduce those artifacts themselves? 
Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are all the STL and OBJ files inside the memory cards as well. And um, I also, in 2016, released um, a folder with New Museum in New York and Rhizome, um, which if you look up this project, you can find the folder online, which contains all that information, all the, all the research. Um, I haven't released all the OBJ STL files publicly yet, except for one of them, which is King Usao, one of the artifacts. And um, that's because I'm trying to work with um, different museums in the Middle East to sort of do it through them. I have been, uh, you know, interested in sort of like trying to find the right platform for it, Mm. uh, which for me is returning it and having it back in the Middle East um, in, in some ways. So I'm working on that right now. To actually have these 3D printed uh, pieces back in the Middle East, is that what you're saying? I mean, not just the the, the physical objects. That would be amazing. Um, people always ask me, like, where do you think this physical objects can go? And I think for me, this project would, would be complete if one day I can put them back at Mosul Museum, these objects. You know, and there's no way to replace them, uh, right? They're destroyed and, and gone. But I think that would be, like, a really beautiful poetic political gesture to like have the physical objects back. But um, I was also mostly talking about the digital files. So um, that's like part of the other thing that I'm working on to sort of like have a museum in the Middle East to keep the digital files and sort of like store them on some online uh, platform. Some media outlets have portrayed this project as you standing up to ISIS. How accurate is that, do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, that's sort of always like the problem, right? With like when you do work that is political and then when you're always in this space of in between, right? Like stuck sort of between extreme Muslims and then the uh, political U.S. Uh, issues around like terrorism, which is like very problematic, always like the way people like approach it. Um, and for me, yeah, I, I knew like when you do political projects, that's always going to become part of it, right? Like that's something that press uses so more people click on it, etc. Um, but yeah, for me, this was never about standing against like ISIS. I think that's just like not what this was about, right? I, I'm, I'm very much would like to like remove ISIS completely from any platform or conversation. Um, and I think that that would be more powerful in so many ways. The same way I think about Donald Trump, like just don't give people platform. The more you like give them um, space and, and uh, sort of like microphone to speak, right, the, the more problematic it is, I think. Um, so, but you know, I always talked about also the problem with U.S. military destroying a lot of artifacts in Iraq and Afghanistan in the last decades. They destroyed a lot of cultural and historical sites. Um, so I think sort of like only seeing this as like a project about ISIS is like a very simplistic read of everything around it. ISIS also exists because of the war on terror, right? So it exists in a cycle that is, that cycle is problematic. Um, yeah, so, and, but... And, and real briefly, I want to get to this before I wrap up. You left Iran and moved to the U.S. in 2007 to get your master's at the University of Denver. Briefly, how did your time here in Colorado influence your art overall? Um, yeah, I, I moved because I got full scholarship from University of Denver um, to study for my master's, and... Um, there was no major in digital media studies um, for master's studies in Iran. So I really wanted to do that. And that was a, a very important part of, you know, my, my growth as an artist. Like the, the faculty and department at University of Denver, um, they were the ones who, like, really played an important role in um, sort of, like, 
making me understand that there are many other ways that you can think about technology um, and like critically thinking about technology. Um, I come from a social science and media studies background. So I already had the theory part, but I just needed to connect it to the practical part, which is to make art. Um, and I think that department was a very important part of the conjunction of two. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Iranian-born artist and DU grad Morishin Alayari. You can see pieces from her collection Material Speculation Isis through Saturday at the Collective Community Arts Center in Lafayette. It's part of the Lafayette Electronic Arts Festival. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.